Hey, well, good morning, everyone. How are we? Good to see all of you. We are continuing on in our series, The Gospel Changes Everything. We're going to be in the book of Colossians this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, open up to the book of Colossians. We're going to be in chapter 4 this morning, continuing, The Gospel Changes Everything. And that's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? The gospel changes everything. Can it really change everything? Does it really change everything? How might the gospel actually really change everything in our lives? And I think before we even dig into that this summer, we have to remind ourselves as to what the gospel actually is. What is the gospel? I think so many of us have different ideas or preconceived notions of what the gospel is. Maybe we have a working definition of the gospel that we could share with one another right now. But I think so, so that we're all on the same page, here's what the gospel is. Just to be reminded, the gospel is the good news announcement that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again according to the scriptures and is now enthroned as the king and lord over all. Amen? That's what the gospel is, and that's what fires me up. And what's so cool about that is that when that message is preached, God graciously draws sinners to himself so they repent of their sins and place their faith and trust and hope in this Jesus, and their lives are transformed and changed forever. Has your life been changed by the gospel? Has it been transformed by this amazing message? For me, I remember the first time I heard the gospel message and it provoked this response in my heart and in my life. And for me, I was eight years old. And I've shared this before at church at Spring Lake and here at Grand Haven. During that season, my family was going through one of the hardest, most difficult times for our family. My younger brother, Kyle, was diagnosed with cancer when he was two years old in 1992. And I was eight years old at the time, and my parents were obviously tremendously busy with that. They were driving my brother Kyle to and from the, the hospital. They were staying with my brother for weeks at a time in downtown Chicago with Kyle as he was receiving treatment. He had a bone marrow transplant. He went through chemotherapy. And I, as an eight-year-old, watched my younger brother, who was just two going on three, weaken. His body was weakened, and he lost his hair. And I just watched him suffer in the sadness and the sickness. And so... I remember one morning on a Sunday morning at church, and I was listening to our pastor, and he was preaching this gospel message, and he was talking about how this Jesus Christ would not only forgive you of your sins if you turn to him, but at some point in the future, you will live with him and reign with him in a world where there is no more sadness, there is no more sickness, there is no more death. And he will wipe away every tear. And for an eight-year-old who was watching his younger brother pass away from cancer, there was nothing more that I wanted than that. That's what I wanted. So I remember at home that night with my mom and my dad asking about this gospel, asking about Jesus, and they prayed with me that night, and I placed my faith and my trust in Jesus. Now, did the gospel in that moment change everything? Did it change everything? Uh, yes and no. <laughs> Yes and no. My younger brother lost his battle to cancer, and he died that year in 1993. Did the gospel heal my brother physically? No. But did the hope of the gospel carry my family through that dark season of our lives where we mourned and we lamented the loss of my brother, but we knew that while he wasn't suffering in sickness and in sadness and in pain anymore, he was now in front of his Savior worshiping him? Uh, that's what got us through. And during that season, the, the even more important lesson that I learned was as I watched my parents 
and I watch them lean into not their relationship with one another, not their relationship with us as kids, not their relationship with other friends at church. Now, they did all of those things, but my parents, more than anything else, leaned into their relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what got them through the most difficult season of their lives. And what I learned as a young eight-year-old, nine-year-old boy during that season was not just the saving power of the gospel, but I also learned this, and this is our big idea this morning. In order for the gospel to change everything for me, Jesus needs to be everything to me. In order for the gospel to change everything for me, Jesus needs to be everything to me. And what I watched in my parents' lives was not this idea that the gospel was this one-time decision that was fire insurance for them, but the gospel truly changed them, and the evidence of that was the fact that Jesus was everything to them. Even as they were losing their son to cancer, Jesus was everything to them. And so we have to stop and we have to ask ourselves this morning, again, in the middle of July in Michigan, is Jesus everything to me? Is Jesus everything to you? How do we know? How do we know if Jesus is everything to us? And so what I want to do, how I want to spend the rest of our time this morning is looking at Colossians 4 and, and, and coming to a better understanding of, of, of whether or not Jesus is everything to us and how we can make him everything. But before we jump into this passage, into God's word this morning, would you pray with me? Father God, we just want to humble ourselves before you, and we want to commit our time to you as we approach your holy word. We ask that you would bless this time, that your spirit would be moving in power right now, that we would be changed and transformed, that we would have a clearer picture of who you are, and that it would draw us to a place of humility and worship. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Okay, so Colossians 4, 2 through 6, and let's see if we can't answer this question this morning. How do I know if Jesus is everything to me? Follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 2, Colossians 4, verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. How do I know if Jesus is everything to me? Well, here's the first thing we can look at in our lives. It's our prayer lives. Prayer reveals my love for Jesus. Prayer reveals whether Jesus is truly everything to me or not. What does my prayer life look like? Do I even pray? Do I talk to Jesus? How long do I talk to Jesus? What do I say to Jesus? How I pray shows whether or not Jesus really is everything to me. Listen to this. The realness of our relationship with Jesus is not revealed by what we say about Jesus, but it's revealed by what we say to Jesus. The realness of my relationship with Jesus is not revealed by what I say about Jesus to other people, but what I say to Jesus in the quietness of my home as I pray, as I go before him. Look again at verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. We are called to pray, and so what is prayer? What is prayer? 
How many of you have heard of D.L. Moody before? Raise your hand if you've heard of D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was the founder of Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. And in the 1800s, he went over to Scotland uh, to visit and to teach. And so he was in this schoolhouse teaching, and he started by asking this question. He asked this question, what is prayer? And this schoolhouse was full of a bunch of grade school children, and he was amazed when every single hand shot up in the air, eager to answer this question, what is prayer? And so D.L. Moody saw a young boy in the front, and he called on that boy to answer that question, what is prayer? And that boy stood up, and he said this. He said, prayer is an offering up a... I would try to do a Scottish accent, but I'm just going to go full Lucky Charms, so I'm just going to read it normal here. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God in the name of Christ, by the help of the Spirit, with confession of our sins, and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. What an answer, right? How many of you, do we have any Harvest Kids volunteers here today? Raise your hand if you volunteer in Harvest Kids. Just raise your hands. Anyone? No one? Have you ever received an answer like that in Harvest Kids? If you do, let us know. We are looking to hire some staff right now. They would make a great addition if this is their answer for prayer. This is what prayer is. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God, along with a confession of sins. It's a thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. This is what prayer is. And I know a lot of us know this and are familiar with it. Yeah, this is what prayer is. But now listen to this, though, okay? God's will for you is that you would pray you're wondering what God's will is for your life, that is his will for you, that you would pray. And listen, listen, this is really important. It's not just his will that you would pray. It's his desire. It's his delight. The God of the universe that we just spent the last half hour lifting our voices and worshiping, the God who holds all things together, he delights and takes joy when you reach out to him and pray to him. Proverbs 15, 8 says the prayer of the upright is his delight. Your heavenly Father takes such joy and delights in you when you talk to him and when you reach out to him. This is his disposition toward you. Not just that. Listen to uh, what God's word says in Isaiah 65, 24. It will also come to pass that before they call, listen, I will answer And while they are still speaking, I will hear. Listen, God is so eager that you would pray to him and that you would reach out to him and that you would bring your desires and needs to to him that that he's going to jump the gun. He's going to, before you're even finished asking for the thing, God's desire is that he would deliver. That's his heart. That's God's disposition toward us, his children. I think most encouraging for me is this passage in Matthew 7, and Jesus is teaching on prayer, and Jesus says this, which one of you, if if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Your God's not seeking to trick you. Your God wants to answer your prayers. He wants to bless you. How many of us view God this way? And how many for us, if we view God this way, would it transform our prayer life? I long to pray so much more than I do, and I'm sure you do as well. Listen, this is God's heart toward us. 
Prayer reveals my love for Jesus. And when we have been radically transformed by the gospel, and we see and our eyes are open to God's love to us, shown through the person and work of Jesus Christ, it should transform our desire to pray. Do you pray? Is Jesus everything to you? And prayer is the very thing that God wants you to lean into if he isn't, to cultivate that relationship. He longs for you to reach out. And so the command in verse 2 should come to, to, should come to us as no surprise. Continue. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. This should be our natural response. Keep reading. Look at verse 3 again. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that's important right there, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So here we have the Apostle Paul, and he's writing this letter to the Colossians, and we see now that he's not writing it from some nice office in Rome or some cushy coffee shop somewhere in Greece. Where is Paul writing this letter from? From prison. Paul went out on a mission to bring the gospel message to the entire Gentile world, and instead of finding Paul on mission here, we find Paul in a seemingly miserable circumstance. And Paul could be frustrated. Paul could be furious about the circumstance he finds himself in, and yet he asks the people in Colossae to do what? To what? To pray. And to pray for what? To pray that his chains would fall off and that he'd be able to storm out of the prison and kill the prison guards and go back on his mission? No. To pray that he would be released and that his rights would be acknowledged and that he would have freedom and liberty? No. What does he pray for? Look, he asks them to pray that there would be an open door. That there would be an open door for him to reveal the mystery of Christ. And listen, the mystery is no longer a mystery. For hundreds of years, the people of God longed to understand how God was going to redeem all of humankind to himself. And, and that mystery is now clear in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is how God has done his saving work, is through Jesus Christ. And Paul's mission was to reveal this mystery, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul asks that the Colossians would pray that a door would be open. How many of you how many of you, if trapped in prison, that would be what you would write in your letter to friends? Hey, I'm stuck in this circumstance. And you'd be like, hey, can you pray for me that I'd have an open door? I know I wouldn't. If I were to write a letter, I'd be like, hey, I'm really frustrated right now. This is really difficult. This detour in my life is making things a lot harder. Would you please send money for bail? Would you find some way to get me out? Hire me a lawyer. This is difficult, but not Paul. Paul didn't respond this way. Paul didn't respond in frustration. He didn't look at his detour through the eyes of misery. No, Paul knew his God better. Paul didn't look at his detour through the eyes of misery. He looked at his detour through the eyes of mission. Paul looked at his detour differently. Listen, we've all experienced detours in our lives. We've all gone through things in our lives 
where we had a vision for how things would go, and then things didn't seem to go the way we thought they should. You ever gone through a detour in your life before? Maybe you're going through a detour in your life right now. You're in a marriage that hasn't turned out the way you'd wanted it to. Your job is difficult. Maybe you lost your job and finances are tight and you're like, how is God going to come through on this? Maybe you have a friend or, or a kid or, or a relationship where that person is making decisions and you don't want them to make those decisions and it's difficult and it's causing strain in your life and it's a detour. And you're frustrated and you're hurt. And oftentimes we find our detours meaningless and they make us miserable. Check out this picture on the screen right now. This is a picture of my younger sister's family. Let's see if we can get that picture up there. There it is. That uh, is my sister Danielle, and that man right next to her with that majestic beard is my brother-in-law, Joseph, and those are their three kids. And they are not just um, frustratingly beautiful and photogenic people on the outside. They are wonderful people, and I love them. And I've shared this story with uh, many of you before, um, but about four years ago, uh, I was in Chicago visiting them, and uh, my grandma had recently passed away from cancer, and so we were at her funeral, and we were together, and their, their middle child, Quinn, she's the girl there right next to my uh, sister, Danielle, uh, she wasn't doing well, and, and she was clearly sick, and, and she's usually bubbly, as you can tell from that picture. She's uh, usually the life of the party and wants to play with all the kids and stuff. But during that season, in, in December of 2017, she wanted nothing to do with anyone. She was on the couch. She was watching TV. She was just not doing well. And so we left, and, 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 and she wasn't getting any better. And so my sister took her to the doctor, and the doctor said, hey, you need to take her to the emergency room right now. And so she took Quinn to the emergency room, and, and they ran some blood tests, and they did some scans, and they found out news that, that no parent ever wants to hear, that, that, that Quinn had cancer, that she had leukemia. This is days before Christmas, and this is a picture of them on Christmas 2017, right here. In the hospital, Quinn receiving her first treatment of chemotherapy, and you want to talk about a detour. Life is going along, Christmas is right around the corner, and you have hopes and dreams of what Christmas is going to look like for your family. And then you find out your daughter has cancer? Like that was the reality that my sister and her family faced just a few years ago, a truly unimaginable detour that they were about to go through. But now listen to this. This is what my sister wrote on Christmas Day, 2017 on Facebook as an update. She wrote this. She wrote, Christmas is much different this year. I imagined our sweet three in their matching jammies waiting at the top of the stairs as mommy and daddy got the presents ready, made a fire, and turned on Christmas music. I imagined we would open presents and watch their excitement all in three different ways, and yet here we are, in the hospital, on Christmas, something I never imagined. And I did not imagine getting news days before, days before Christmas, that my daughter would have leukemia. I did not imagine that we would be sitting in a hospital room waiting for her second round of chemotherapy on Christmas Day. However, I also did not imagine how the Lord would show himself in the mightiest of ways during the hardest of moments. 
I did not imagine how God would reveal himself in new ways and cover us with his amazing grace and comfort and love. And to my sister in that moment, I say, preach, right? Preach. In the following month, hundreds of people would cover my sister in prayer and hundreds of more would, would, would rally together and, and provide them funds of over $50,000 to care for Quinn and her cancer and the transportation and all of that. Uh, listen, by late January, they had run the chemo and the cancer was gone, just the way leukemia works, but they still had years of chemotherapy to go through. And at that point, the detour was so far from over for them. But listen, two years later, they've navigated that. Quinn has been cancer-free. Um, she is in remission now. She is healed. But listen, in the moment of that detour, what God showed them was his goodness and his faithfulness. God drew them close to himself, and he used that detour for his glory and for their good. Listen, our God is the God of the detour. That is who he is. Our God is the God of the detour. And how often do we view the detours in our lives as frustration, as a nuisance, as a difficulty, as something that we have to plow through until we get back on track? Listen, what if you understood that the detour in your life right now is the very thing that God is wanting to use in your life to drive you to himself? That God is want, wanting to make much of himself in your life, and he is wanting to use this detour that you're going through right now to draw you to himself, and the vehicle by which he wants to take you there is through prayer. It's by humbly falling on your knees in the midst of your difficult circumstance when you feel like there is no way out and you have no idea how God is going to resolve the difficult circumstance or situation that you're in right now, what God is wanting from you is he's wanting you to fall on your knees and go before him and pray. Remember, that's his disposition for, toward you. He delights in you approaching him and seeking him out. This is what God wants from, from you. What if instead of viewing your detour as an obstacle, you saw it as an opportunity to draw near to God in this season of your life? Prayer reveals my love for Jesus. Is Jesus everything to me? My prayer life reveals this. It reveals whether Jesus is at the center or not. Here's the next thing we see in the passage is this. My love for others reveals my love for Jesus. My love for the outsider, the way I conduct myself around them, reveals my love for Jesus and shows that Jesus really, truly is everything to me. Look at verse 5. Verse 5, Paul writes this, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. You know, as we grow in our relationship with Jesus, he becomes more important to us. His desires become our desires. His priorities become our priorities. And one thing that we see so clearly in the Gospels is that Jesus is, is tremendously passionate and cares for the outsider. So if that's what Jesus is compassionate toward, and if that's what Jesus cares about, and if that's what Jesus is passionate about, then that's what we should be passionate about as well. If Jesus is truly everything to us, then the way we interact with those outside 
the family of faith, those whose lives have not been impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It reveals to us whether Jesus is everything or not. And everything we need to know about how to interact with those outside of the faith, we can find here in verses 5 and 6. And what Paul is getting at here is he, he is saying, listen, as followers of Jesus Christ, life is short and time is limited, so we need to make the most of every opportunity. He even says, make the best use of the time, there in verse 5. And what Paul means by that, the literal Greek there means, buy up every opportunity. And every chance you see to make the most of God and preach the gospel, make the most of that and buy that up. Don't waste those opportunities. I want to go back for a second because I, I think these two verses, verses 5 and 6, are all predicated on the fact that we are actually interacting with and building relationships with, and spending time with people outside of the family of faith. People who don't think like us. People who don't view the world like us. People who have not been impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because listen, wasn't that all of us at one point? Isn't that what we all are? Just outsiders who have now been brought in by the gracious love of God, so undeserving of the gospel truth? that Jesus Christ died for your sins, rose again, and now gave you the whole, like, we have been given such an amazing gift. We are not insiders battling against outsiders. We are former outsiders brought in by the love of God, seeking to bring others in. You see, the problem that, that Paul was, was facing in Colossae was this idea called syncretism. And so in his church, in this church in, in, in Colossae, the, the, the church was so much like the culture outside that you couldn't even tell the difference. And I think in our church, our church is big enough where we face this problem in different areas. But then there's an opposite problem as well. There's this thing called sectarianism, which means the church is so separate and so different that there's no connection, there's no dialogue between the church and those outside the walls of the church. And listen, Jesus wants neither of those things. Jesus wants neither. You see, Jesus wants us out and in the world because he loves the world. He created this place. He's passionate about it. But he doesn't want us in the world and taken out by the evil one who still has power and domain in this world. Jesus prays in John 17. He says, Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. They got to stay there. They have a job. They have a mission. But he says this, but that you would keep them from the evil one. That's what Jesus prays for, that we would be here in the world, operating for the gospel, for God's glory, but that we would be protected. And then Jesus warns us, he, he prays this, lo, I send you out as sheep among wolves. And Jesus sees the danger, and he knows the danger, but he doesn't say build walls, he doesn't say build fences, he just says, listen, I know that the danger is big out there, but I am bigger, and I have a bigger mission for you. I'm going to help you do it. He cares for us. He sees what we, what we are up against, but he's going to empower us and protect us to go out and love others well. He will. And two ways that we see that in this passage. The first way we see that is to walk wisely. Walk wisely toward outsiders. Look at verse 5 again. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. And scripture, I think, in a lot of ways can be really clear on things. And it says, hey, here, here's, here's what truth is, or, or do this, or, or don't do this. I think Scripture is clear on so many things. But oftentimes, there are areas where Scripture isn't so clear. 
And it appears to be gray, or or Scripture gives some leeway on some things, or maybe Scripture is silent on those things. And this is where wisdom comes in. Wisdom is knowing what to do for the glory of God when God's Word appears to be silent or gives room. That's what wisdom is. And even more importantly, walking in wisdom toward outsiders is knowing how to act in, in such a way that is appealing and attractive to other people, but listen but doesn't compromise on holiness or truth. Walking in wisdom toward outsiders is walking in such a way that is appealing or attractive to them, but does not compromise on holiness or truth. And so in life, we are faced with a variety of decisions to walk wisely in, and sometimes Scripture doesn't speak so clearly to those things. And so I want to run through just a few questions that we can ask ourselves as we face a variety of decisions in life that will help us to navigate this world and walk wisely. And here's one question we can ask ourselves. It's this. Will this decision make God look great? Will this decision make God look great? What will others think about my God as they watch me make this decision? Will it make God look great, or will they second-guess me in my decision and second-guess God? Will this decision make God look great? Will this decision, here's another one, will this decision cause me to lose self-control? God's Word says that all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial, and maybe you have an opportunity to talk about Jesus with your coworkers, and they go out afterward and after work and, and have a couple drinks. And for you, maybe that's fine. You can have a drink or two, and you can talk to your friends about the gospel. But listen, for some of you, you know that's not the case. And one drink becomes two drinks, and two become 12. And before you realize it, you, you, you definitely didn't talk about Jesus the night before, and you can't remember what you talked about the night before. Will the decision I'm about to make cause me to lose self-control? If it does, it's a bad idea. It's not walking wisely toward outsiders. Here's another question to ask ourselves. Will this decision help or hurt other people? Very simple. Will this decision help people or hurt people? Am I making this decision from a selfish heart or a selfless heart? Am I making this decision from a desire to protect my own thing? This is about me or is this about other people? I'm looking to help other people flourish and grow. One more question we can ask ourselves. Will this decision help or hinder the advance of the gospel? Ultimately, we are gospel people, and the thing that we should be most passionate about is seeing the gospel message of Jesus Christ reach every single person we know. And will the decision I'm about to make advance the cause of the gospel, advance my ability to better live the gospel message out, preach the gospel message to those around me, or will it hurt the advance of the gospel? So if we want to make the most of our time for the glory of God, the first thing we need to do is walk wisely. Here's the second thing we're called to do. We need to watch my words. Watch our words. Look at verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. Not only are we to walk in wisdom, We need to watch our words. Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our words reveal where our hearts are at. What do your words reveal? Do your words reveal an angry, bitter, cynical, frustrated heart? 
Are you quick to point out the flaws and faults in other people? Are you quick to complain? Are you the person who's always complaining on Facebook and you've got these things that frustrate you and you're constantly giving vent to that? Or does your heart reveal this this desire for joy and grace and peace and love? What does your heart reveal? What What do your words reveal to outsiders about your relationship with Jesus Christ? When you talk about Jesus to others, do you talk to others about Jesus at all? When you do, does it come out in a sort of condemning way where you're like, well, I'm a Christian and I'm different and Jesus wouldn't approve of that? Or are your words about Jesus seasoned with salt? What does that even mean, that our words about Jesus would be seasoned with salt? Well, I think it means this. I think it means that as we talk to outsiders... And as we share our lives with outsiders, and as we connect with people who have not been changed or transformed by the gospel, and we talk about Jesus, we talk about him in such a way where other people's mouths, spiritually, figuratively, begin to water because our relationship with Jesus sounds so very appealing and appetizing. They're seasoned with salt. My, my kids are not the most adventurous eaters. One of their favorite meals over the years has been buttered noodles. Anyone else have kids who love buttered noodles? <laughs> Literally noodles, butter, and salt. Those three things. And if it's missing the salt, it's missing everything. <laughs> everything. And my kids are quick to let me know when there is not enough salt in the butter noodles. Listen, our speech about Jesus Christ needs to be seasoned with salt. How do we get there, though? How does that happen in our lives, that our words about Jesus would be seasoned with salt? Listen, I don't think it operates like this. I don't think we think first about the people outside these walls who need to hear the message, and we think, what would be most appealing to them? And and how are they going to want to hear this message? And, and, And let's slot it in so that they'd like it. Listen, no, I think it's as simple as this. It's as simple as every single day praying, talking to your God, talking to Jesus, getting in his word, and reminding yourself of how good the gospel is. Because I think for so many of us who have been walking with Jesus for any length of time, we have begun to neglect the goodness of the gospel, and we forget how good it tastes. Listen, it's hard to have appetizing words about Jesus when you haven't been enjoying him yourself. It's hard to have appetizing words about Jesus for other people when you personally haven't been enjoying him yourself. Is Jesus everything to you? Have you personally been enjoying Jesus and the goodness and mercy and kindness and grace found in the gospel message. Our time here is limited, and we are called to make an impact, to buy up every opportunity for the gospel. We're we're called to walk wisely toward those outside of, of, of this place. We are called to watch our words, and we are called to go before God and pray and seek him out. Remember, in order for the gospel to change everything for me, Jesus needs to be everything to me. Is he everything to you. Let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, we um, come before you and would you just forgive us? Forgive us for seeking after other gods, other things to satisfy us. Lord Jesus, you and you alone satisfy us. And so God, right now, would you forgive us for, for turning away from you? And even now, Lord, would we be reminded of your kindness toward us, that it is your kindness that leads us to repentance? Would we be reminded of your disposition toward us as your children, that your desire is to talk to us and to hear our hearts and to hear our desires? And would we not hold back? Even in this moment right now, God, would our hearts begin to reach out to you again? You are a God of perpetual mercy and forgiveness. Would you restore to us our first love? And as we delight in you, and as we take joy in you, would we desire for our conduct and our words outside of this place to have real impact? Would we not just live our lives for ourselves, but would we, would we know that we are sent out on mission as sheep among wolves to preach the gospel and to love other people well and to give of ourselves? Would you help us to be creative in how we do that? Imaginative is how we engage the world around us. And as we do this, as we seek after you in prayer, as we seek after others so that they would understand the impact of the, impact of the gospel, Lord, would you become everything to us? And would that change everything in our lives, God? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.